dear Mr. or Mrs. President, I have some concerns. There are a lot of bad people in the world. And the economy could use some work. And what are you going to do to protect my freedoms? I hope you have some strong leadership. Sincerely, a concerned voter. Good morning. Welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you today. Everybody enjoying this extra hour of sleep? Yeah, no? How many of you like got to church like an hour early? Like you were like, I totally forgot. The rest of you are lying, so yeah. This is a great day when you do that just to go have breakfast. You just got to come back. That's the problem on a day like today. Uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, this is typically one of the largest attended weekends in church in America uh, when in the fall because you get that extra hour. And then the spring, I don't even show up for that service because it's just really, really bad. But I, I do like to make fun of people that are coming late. So anyhow, not to this service, but in the springtime, so I'll wait for that. Um, we're in this series uh, on Mr. and Mrs. President, and uh, uh, as you know, on Tuesday, November the 8th, we will go to the polls and cast a vote uh, on this very unique uh, election season. And uh, I've been walking through this, and today I want to continue this series. And so if you have your Bibles, you turn me to Genesis chapter 41. I'm going to look at Genesis chapter 41, then we're going to skip to chapter 47. So if you have a Bible, you can open to 41, 47 to follow along, because I want to walk through that narrative there. Um, and uh, I've titled this talk, Ignore the Majority. I know we live in a democratic society. I'm not promoting a benevolent dictatorship or a dictatorial society or form of government. I very much enjoy the democratic society and world in which we live in. But there are problems sometimes with that. And, uh, and so I want to walk through some of that. I'm also going to look at, I've preached both of these passages of Scripture numerous times uh, because it, it involves the, the person of Joseph, who's one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. I think when you read Scripture, you identify with different leaders. Uh, I identify with Joseph probably more so than any of the other leaders in Scripture uh, for a lot of reasons I don't have to go in, time to go into today. But I want to flip the script. I, I'm, gonna, I'm not talking about Joseph today and his strength and power and how God used him and how God saved the nation of Israel through the wisdom that he gave and the giftings that he gave Joseph. But I want to show you and I want to talk about how God works through ungodly leaders. God does that. God's will is always done. And uh, Pharaoh is one of those such leaders. And, and I want to walk through that and show you how God used Pharaoh, who was not an individual that followed God at all. Uh, Egypt, as a matter of fact, was a very multi-theistic society. Many roads led to God, many different idols. Pharaoh never gets saved. He never comes to a relationship with God. He never converts to Judaism uh, or Christianity. And Christianity wasn't around at that point in time, but it would have pronounced himself and following Jehovah God or Elohim, as a Hebrew would call God. He never does that. But God uses him and he blesses him. Why? Because God is going to use that to save his people. Um, and God does the same thing even in the midst of administrations that may not be godly, uh, that may not even admit that God exists. God still works. And it's very interesting how he works. But Pharaoh does some things that 
quite frankly, are very biblically sound, and God is working through all of that. And so uh, we're, we're going to look at that. As we go to the polls on Tuesday and how this affects, I'm going to show you how this affects us as citizens that are voting. Um, there are two problems that we face in America, especially in light of today's talk. First of all is that ma the majority is not always right. I know we live in a democratic society, and again, I'm all for a democratic form of government. But although we're in that democratic society, the majority is not always right. The majority can choose to do things or be for things or against things that historically will show and prove to be wrong. Probably one of the greatest examples that we could all talk about is civil rights. And uh, if you go back in the prior to the 60s of the civil rights revolution and movement under great men like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you will see that we had it wrong as a nation. Uh, we, we actually espoused and, uh, and embodied um, prejudice and racial bias uh, in, in very horrific ways. And even to this day, we're still dealing with the subject matter. Um, I, I grew up in the South, and so, but I grew up in a very uh, desegregated school. So the school I grew up with, I mean, I had black neighbors and white neighbors and Hispanic neighbors, and, and I grew up in a very blue-collar area. Uh, and um, so I, I just, this was somewhat of a, even growing up in Arkansas was a foreign concept to me until I get to, um, uh, you know, uh, history in junior high, and they began to talk about uh, slavery and racism and, and civil rights movements and people. Martin Luther King Jr. is probably one of the most studied people as far as a non-biblical figure that I've studied, researched, done multiple papers on. Fascinating leader to me. His humanity is fascinating to me, but also just how he led. Um, and um, my grandparents, who grew up in a very segregated South, um, owned a diner in the town square in this little town in northeast Arkansas, a little cafe uh, that my mother would always talk very fondly of. And my grandmother was, was the queen of cooks. I mean, my grandmother could just, man, could she, oh, wow. I'm hungry right now just thinking about it. And, uh, and I remember when I was going through this, uh, these classes, these history classes in school, asking them, so grandmother, granddaddy, you, you had a cafe down in the town square? Yeah. And they say that there was... A black section in the back, and there was a white section. The whites could eat in the front dining, but there the blacks could only go to the back. Is that true? Yep. H how do you reconcile that? How do you deal with that? How do you justify that? Especially according to Scripture. The Bible says if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God in heaven whom you haven't seen? It's very clear. Well, the reality is that the majority prior to that revolution and, and, and that, that movement, the civil rights movement of the 60s, there was a lot of people that were completely content with that. If they were white and the people that were being racially biased and profiled against, it, it's a tough subject. And um, we're wrong as a country, and we made that right, even denominationally. If you go back to the Azusa Street Revival that happened in 1906 in Los Angeles, California, there was a split out of the charismatic Pentecostal renewal and revival movement that came out of that, and the issue was blacks and whites. And um, very interesting that that revival was led by an African-American preacher. The greatest move in the last 100 years, uh, God used it in that fashion. 
but we did not have it smart enough to get it. And so there's been reconciliation that's happened nominationally from the Assemblies of God, from the Alliance, uh, all these movements that came out, charismatic independence um, to Church of God in Christ. And if you have a Kojic background or whatever, to say we were wrong. Because sometimes in our majority, we think that the majority rules. Well, if everybody thinks this is right or everybody thinks this is wrong, this must be right, this must be wrong. And time and time and time and time and time again, biblically and historically, we see that the majority is not always right. The other problem we have in this nation is that we are a wealthy nation and we have rich people problems. I like to call them princess problems. It took a little long for my Bluetooth to connect to my stereo in my car off of my smartphone this morning. Heated seats aren't quite as hot as I think they should be. <sighs> rich people problems. And you don't think you're rich. That's the funny thing. We don't think we're rich people. But how many cars do you own? How many cars are parked at your house? Well, it's easy. I'm, I just have one. Because you're single. But if you're married, you've got two. And if you have one, you're praying for another one or looking for another one. And, and if you have a kid, uh, you know, you, sometimes you'll get a beater or, or you've got, and you may have three cars or four cars. Do you realize that only, only uh, 8 to 10% of the people on this planet own a single automobile? 90 to 92% of the people today in this world do not own a car. So the fact that we gripe about, man, I got this gas guzzler. You know how much it's costing? You know, the, 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 the um, gas pump is, is a working man's stock market, right? So when it's up, when the gas prices are up, we're griping. When it's down, let's all go on a trip. And that's just how, how it works. It's just, we, we, the, these are issues. Healthcare. Healthcare. This is the big debate. I'm going to go get right in the middle of it. Is it a right or a benefit? I mean, in this country, 75 years ago, health care was, was not existent in the way that it is today with insurance. And so the fact that we have an, uh, you know, a, a double-digit percentage increase of, of cost in health care, I don't like it either. I'm experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing. But, but the reality is, is it a right or a benefit? Because I can take you to a lot of places in the world where there is no such thing. This is not a conversation. There's a very well-noted documentarian who is, who is famously noted sitting in a boat off the coast of, of, of Cuba and Havana and having a megaphone saying, please let us come and get your free health care. I've been to that hospital. Do you know what happens at that hospital? The elevator doesn't work in that hospital. You want to go there for health care? They, you're going up and down floors. They're yelling, three, five, six, because they have to emergency break the elevator. And, and because the buttons don't work on it, they have to emergency break it in order to let people on and off. And so people are calling out their floor number so that you know which one to get on and off on. Well, that's great, isn't it? I'm filtering so much right now, it's not even funny. I, I'm just saying, these are rich people problems. Unemployment. 5% unemployment in this country. So a news report this past week that in Sioux Falls, uh, uh, South Dakota, it's less than 2%. The problem is they don't have people to do jobs that need to be done. Let me just stop and rewind that tape. They have jobs that people say, I don't want to do that job. That's rich people problems. 
When you have the ability to choose what job you want to, and I, and I have people say to me sometimes, I can't find a job, move. Move. Well, I just can't leave family. I did 14 years ago. There's opportunities. This is a great country, but these are rich people problems that we deal with. And if you don't have a job today, I'm not beating up on you. I'm just simply saying there is work. May not be the kind of work you want to do. May it be the work that you feel like you're qualified for. But I tell you what, if I had to work third shift at a, at a convenience store and deliver pizzas to, to put food on the table for my family, that's what I do because that's the house I was raised in. Paul says if you don't work, you don't eat. A man doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Don't even get me shouting when I'm preaching good. I'm just saying these are rich people problems. I'm not saying they're not real issues. I'm not saying they're not real problems. I'm not saying there aren't things that we don't all gripe and complain about. And I'm not shooting at you. I'm just saying this is what's happening in the world in which we live in. Half of Americans are on some kind of prescription medication. Again, I'm not hating on you. I'm on prescription drugs too. I'm just saying to you, I can take you to places in the world where it's just basic health care is not even available for the masses. I mean, millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people. Educational system, it's broken, America. I, I think we have some issues. But this is still the gold standard of the, of the world for higher education. I'll never forget last fall being in Hong Kong at First Assembly of God there, and, and it was between services, and I was there and with a pastor, and, and the senior pastor, was. we were having coffee in his office, and a break between services, and, and he began to, he has three grown kids, adult kids, and so he was talking about them, and, and this, this one went to John Hopkins, and this daughter went to Stanford, and this son just graduated from Harvard, all with earned PhDs. They're not Americans, they're, they're Chinese, they grew up in Hong Kong. Where do they send their kids to be educated? America. Because we are the gold standard when it comes to education internationally. Are there other great schools? Yes. But I'm just telling you, rich people problems. And we need a leader who has the courage to ignore the complaints of us overindulged, fat, and I'm not speaking physically, although I could, fat, lethargic people and to do what's right. And the Old Testament it speaks about such a leader, and he, we don't even know his name. He's just Pharaoh. It's kind of like being given the title of president. We don't know which Pharaoh he is, but we do know he was not a godly man. We do know that he was the king of Egypt, and Egypt was the premier world power in that day and time, much like the United States. And again, so that you're not thinking that we're talking about Birkenstocks and, and, and bathrobes, you know, in this land far, far away. You have to understand that, I mean, just Egypt in and of itself was, was amazing. Like, we still don't know how they built the pyramids the way they built it without modern machinery. Do you understand that architecture, architecture goes back to, they're the first known civilization that had indoor plumbing. Now, not like Kohler fixtures, right? Right? You understand? But where they could actually figure out how to get the water and the sewage from inside the home and inside the city and flow it out. They actually, because they were, uh, uh, you know, where, they, where they're located geographically, uh, were able to figure out how to run, it's kind of how our HVAC systems run today without the use of electricity, how that they could bring uh, airflow through a room and literally induct it into a room and then pull it the way we do with, with, with return air vents all the way across the room. 
i.e., air conditioning. The Egyptians were incredibly intelligent, savvy, smart, high capacity, high wealth people, much like America. And in the middle of all of this, Genesis chapter 41, there is this narrative, this story of Joseph. Joseph was this Hebrew teenager who was betrayed by his brothers, ended up in prison in Egypt, to make a long story short. While he's in prison, he correctly interprets two dreams of two former employees of Pharaoh. One was executed, the other one was restored to power, just as Joseph had predicted. And a couple of years later, Joseph, Pharaoh has a dream nobody can interpret, so the cupbearer, who was in prison with Joseph, remembered Joseph and mentioned him to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh sends for him. And we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 41, verse 14. And the Bible says, So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon where he had shaved and, and changed his clothes. And he came before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God, Elohim, which is Hebrew for God, the sovereign God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. So then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And the essence of the dream is that there were seven healthy cows, and they came out of the river, and they were eating. There were seven scrawny cows, that they came up, and they ate the healthy cows. There were also seven ears of grain that came out of a single stalk, and there were seven withered ones that sprouted up and swallowed up the healthy one. You have to understand, Egypt was the granary capital of the ancient world. Skip on down to verse 25. Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Go down to verse 29. He says, seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. Remember, they're the capital of, of granary in the ancient world. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that has followed it will be so severe. This is a horrible news for, for a world leader such as Pharaoh. Egypt is accustomed to unprecedented prosperity, just like you would be and I would be. Meat, bread, and abundance. They exported food to the rest of the world. Uh, this kind of news could result in a revolution. Egyptians li lived year to year off the abundance of the land. Sound familiar? Swipe. So their credit cards are maxed, right? You got it? Look at verse number 33. And now Pharaoh... And that he, Joseph said, now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man, put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. So here's what he's promoting, that, there's, that there will be a 20% tax now for later. So save that money that's coming in. There was already a 10% tax on grain that was imposed upon the people. So Joseph is saying it should be doubled. And again, there's no real good reason uh, for why this is going on that they understand what's happening. Look at verse 35. They should collect all the food from those of the good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh, that it will be kept in the cities for food. This food will be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine and will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Let's just stop for a second. Let's just look at the political implications of this. Joseph is suggesting, which again, watch this. God gives him the ability to interpret dreams, which brings his gifting before kings. The book of Proverbs says that. That your gift will make room for you before kings. It's the same thing is true today. Whatever gifting that God's given you, it will make room for you before bosses or employers or people of power of influence. God's the same. He doesn't change. When he gets there, God not only gives him the ability to interpret dream, the dream, he also gives him the wisdom and the insight. 
Wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is facts and figures. Wisdom is knowing what to do with those facts and figures in order to make it work for you. He's basically saying, look, what I'm, about, I'm proposing to you is very hard, but here's the brutal facts. You're, you're in for seven years of abundance, and nobody's going to know what's going wrong. And in seven years at the end of that, there's going to come seven years of famine, and it's going to wipe you out, not only your people, but as a world power, and your legacy is over. The only way to overcome that is to set it up in such a way that we began to hold the grain back, which means that we're not going to export anything, which means you're not going to be very geopolitically, it's not going to be very favorable to you. But you're a world power. The people aren't going to understand it. You're going to tax them for something that's going to be in abundance. There's going to be a ton of questions. You're going to have to enforce this, which is going to create some, some stresses on some of your, uh, of your security system. And you're also going to have to put together an infrastructure of granaries, which you do not have now because everything you bring in, you eat or you export. Verse 37, Pharaoh's response. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all of his officials. Verse 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you. Notice, he doesn't believe in God, but he sees the hand of God upon his life. Even ungodly people can recognize the hand of God upon your life. There was no one so discerning and wise as you. Notice he doesn't talk about knowledge. Knowledge is about facts and figures. Everybody has facts and figures. But the person that's wise in the room knows how to interpret those facts and figures and leverage those in order to do something that produces for the individual, the company, the, the country, whatever. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. This is amazing because they don't like, Egyptians do not like Hebrews, Jews. They despise them. They look down upon them. They're dogs. They have no value to them. Yet he puts them number two in the nation. Verse 30, excuse me, 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh the king. And Joseph went out of Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. And during the seven years of abundance, and the land produced plentifully. And Joseph collected all the food that was produced in those seven years, and the abundance in Egypt, and stored it in the cities. And in each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Verse 49, and Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Think about this. Pharaoh didn't sell any food to surrounding nations. They actually stored it off for the future. This made no sense to the people. This information wouldn't have gotten to the people because it's a dictatorship. He doesn't have to tell them anything. But you know human nature. You know, they're asking questions like, why are they taxing us when we have such abundance? Why are they storing up something that we're drowning in? I hear there's so much they don't even keep record of it. Why, 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 why not just take what you don't, why are they taking what they don't need? It, it doesn't make any sense. And if you take 20%, we have to produce that much more. But understand this. Pharaoh wasn't leading like now is then. Pharaoh was leading like then is now. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Look at verse 53. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. Verse 54. And the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. And there was famine in all the lands. But in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold the grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because of the famine. Again, it ensures their power in the world. God begins to bless this nation that's not even godly because he has an ultimate plan. Now turn over to chapter 47, verse 13. Chapter 47, verse 13, it kind of tells the rest of the story. I, mean, I could read the other six chapters if you'd like for me to, but I just thought we'd get it right there. 
Verse 13, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan, which is where the Israelites live, were wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that could be found in Egypt and in Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. And when the people, excuse me, when the money of the people was gone, all of Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before our, your eyes? Our money is all gone. He says, then bring your livestock. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since the money is all gone. He's not being mean. He's not fleecing the people, but he's giving value to what's happening here. If he gives everything out, they don't have anything and they don't make it. He knows they've got to make it for seven years. The second thing he does, which is very important, is that, is that he allows people to have dignity. Although they're out of money, what do you have? He allows them to have dignity because if the nation is strong, the people will, will be strong once this famine is over. This is something we don't get a whole lot in a context of our world because of social welfare, we pass out so much stuff and give so much stuff that people become dependent upon, upon the welfare system and they become in, impoverished. According to scripture, poverty is a curse to any man. People that are in poverty are not, are not cursed people, but the fact that the poverty is in their life, that brings a cursing to them. That brings, it's, 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 it, there's a lack of blessing that's that, which is all part of, of the fall of man. And so there's a dignity that's exchanged. And again, this is the reason why social welfare doesn't work. It's not that we don't need to help people. We need to help people, but in a way that allows them to help themselves. And so not just giving somebody something, but teaching them how to produce for themselves, helping them through that lean time, but to produce for that. That's what he's doing in that. Look at verse number 23. So Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is the seed so that you can plant it in the ground. Again, he's teaching them not just how to, how to eat, but teaching them how, how to grow their own crops. Verse 24, when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh, but the other four, four fifths you can keep for seed, uh, for the fields and food for yourselves and your households and your children. Verse 25, this is their response. You have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. I know Pharaoh had a couple of advantages. He wasn't elected, so he didn't need approval ratings. They weren't important to him. He didn't have to get his stuff passed through Congress. I get all of that. But there's some leadership decisions that he makes. If you walk through this, if you're a leader at all, these are just some great thoughts. This isn't even in my notes. This is some parenthetical thoughts. He always led with the future in mind. Pharaoh led with the future in mind. Secondly, he didn't assume unending prosperity. Folks, it's not always going to be good. Doesn't mean it's going to be horrible. Doesn't mean the world that we're going to fall off the face of the planet. But it just means that the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. And so you have to be prepared in times of prosperity. You've got to put back for the times that are going to be lean. In 08, when the market crashed and we dealt with this great recession, there were people, not just wealthy people, but there were some average Joe people that made some great decisions and investments that produced. I know of a maintenance worker who had several hundred thousand dollars that he had saved throughout his time working as a maintenance worker. And when the market came to the low, he saw a blue chip stock that he went in and that was basically a couple of dollars a share that had been triple digits before. He goes in and invests it thinking, hey, if it all goes to pot, if this thing goes under, we're all in deep weeds anyhow. I'm going to invest this and see what happens. When the recession turned, he made millions of dollars off that few hundred thousand dollars worth of investment 
and retired. Why? Was he lucky? No. He had been prepared. He didn't assume unending prosperity and was able to capitalize into a situation that most people could have had they been in a position of having not eaten everything they had made. Pharaoh prepared the nation for what he believed was ahead. He looked down the road. Great leaders have vision and insight. Where's this company going? Where's this market going? Where's this going? What's happening? What do we need to do? I'm 45, 44. If I should stay here till I retire, there's going to come a time, and there's already been conversation, discussion. What's going to be the succession plan? Who will succeed me? What will happen? Am I planning on going anywhere tomorrow? No. But there's got to be a plan. There's got to be a thought. Why? Because we need to make sure that we're leading well and stewarding well what God's given us. You have to think in those times. That's what great leaders do. He, he also acted on what he knew rather than what the majority thought. The majority many times will be wrong because they have limited information. And it's very easy to, to criticize people that are in power, but sometimes they have information you don't have, and they're making decisions that you don't understand, that if you had all the facts and the figures, you'd make the same decisions. And when you do that, leadership is lonely. When you do that, people aren't going to understand. When you do that, you're going to be in the crosshairs sometimes. He ignored public opinion, which may sound counterintuitive to you, but it's actually a pretty good strategy. Because he also listened to outsiders. Probably one of the greatest presidents that we've ever had that's done this historically was Lincoln. Lincoln was a fascinating leader because he was staunch in what he believed. He had dealt with enough failure in his life that he had humility, that he, when he was brought to a place of prominence, he knew how to handle it. But he would bring his rivals around him. After there's a book called The Team of Rivals and how he led through opposites, how he led through people that diametrically opposed his agendas. He brought those people in, not in order to try to, to, try to sabotage them, but in order to try to understand what they were thinking, to understand where they were coming from, to, it was almost the scientific theory of, of thought that if I could disprove this, and I've actually, well, I've unproven it, but if, if I can't disprove it by opposition, then I've actually proven the thesis and, and the theories that I have. Pharaoh goes on, he taxed and saved rather than taxed and spent. I am major filtering right now. The reality is, is that we tax and tax and tax, but we spend and spend and spend. Why? Because the majority in this country demand more and more and more and more and more. Somebody's got to pay. He allowed the best people to do the job, not just the insiders. Understand, they did not at all value Egyptians, Jews, I mean, the Egyptians didn't value Jews or, or, or the Israelites, disdained them. Yet, Pharaoh brings him in and makes him number two in the nation. Why? Because he was the best person for the job. He wasn't a slave to existing bureaucracy. He did what he thought was fair for the people around him. He did what was best for the country. So, how does this apply to us? So glad you asked that question. Whoever the next president that will be elected on Tuesday, November the 8th, will be, biblically speaking, we need someone that will lead us and not try to please us. We may not like it, but that's the truth of the matter. 
We need a leader that will lead us and not try to please us. Whoever that is, lead me. Don't try to please me. See, because pleasing me is not helping me. We've got this all wrong. This doesn't hold theological water or even psychological water. But we think if we please someone, we love someone. That's what's wrong with the millennial generation. It's not necessarily their fault. It's that you and I as parents, we've pampered and babied these kids and given them blue ribbons and everything's great and everything's awesome and this and this and this and this and this. And there's no hard work. You don't see kids with paper routes anymore. You don't see kids, I'm filtering major right now, cutting the grass. Teach them. Both of my daughters know how to, how to start a lawnmower, how to weed eat, and, and, and how to run a lawnmower. Why? Because I'm not always going to be there. And, and they need to understand how to run and how to do that. And they, they need to do, are you, would you value education? Yes, I heavily value education, but I also value hard work. If I see one of my kids making fun of someone who's doing an honest day's work, their rear end's going to be out doing the same job. Why? Because at the end of the day, it's about we, we, we've, got to, we've got to develop some type of a constitution and a character. That, that's, this is not about pleasing people. It's about trying to help people. It's a cold world out there. So learn how to deal with this and learn how to do this and learn how. Don't just try to please me. Don't just try to tell me that everything's going to be okay and everything's going to be roses because it's not. The math does not add up. We've got $21 trillion in debt. Somebody's got to pay for it. And it's not fair to pass it on to the next generation. But do we want to stand up and have to tighten our proverbial belts? Because famine's coming. This, is, this cannot pro propagate itself forever. Mathematically, it doesn't work. Theologically, it doesn't work. Historically, everything runs in cycles. And I'm not a bloom, gloom, or despair person. I heard somebody saying the other day, well, they're not doing anything until after the election because if so-and-so gets in, the sky's going to fall. And if so-and-so gets in, it's going to be great. You're nuts. Just go live your life. I'm telling you, I'm going out to eat today. I'll play a round of golf today. I'm going to spend money today. If the sun's going to come up tomorrow, life's going to go ahead. But I'm also smart enough to understand that I don't eat everything that I make. I put something back, and I cannot live beyond my means. And sometimes there are things that cause me to have to make a sacrifice as a dad, as a leader, and as a pastor. And it, it puts me in that place. And so sometimes there's this whole thinking of, I'm just pleasing you, I'm loving you. To please someone is not to love them. Where do we get this? if you really love me, you'll give me this. No, if I really love you, I'm going to tell you no and get your rear end out there and go work your own job and find it, right? Mom and dads, I'm just telling you, I, I'm giving you some great information today saying amen. You can look at your child today at lunch and say, honey, I was going to buy you that new car, but pastor said no. <laughs> I really was, but he said no. I was going to go buy you that new dress, but he said no. We were going to pay for your education, but your mother and I, we've decided no. No, I'm just teasing. So, Lead us, don't try to please us. Why? Because when Pharaoh was leading the nation, they didn't understand it. But he was doing what was in the best interest of the people. That's what leadership is. Next, lead as if now, excuse me, then is now. Lead as if then what you see coming in the future is happening today. If in 04 you knew what was going to happen in 08, what decisions would you have made differently? If you sit back and you look and you have any insight on information that says this is where things are going, what do you need to change? 
how do you need to adjust? That's what he did. That's very unpopular. Because when they're living in this unprecedented pre- uh, abundance and all of a sudden they're taxing them double, could you imagine all of a sudden your tax rate doubles? Your property tax doubles? The mill rate where you live doubles? It'd be public outcry. But if, it, if you look at it from a long, long span, they say to Joseph, thank you. You saved us. But they weren't thanking them seven years ago. They weren't thanking them eight years ago, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, 14 years ago. They wanted to impeach the Pharaoh and they wanted to get somebody else in. He, they had lost his mind. But history. Whoever comes into office, lead as if then is now, even if it's unpopular. Next is lead with your legacy in mind, not current public opinion. Legacy. What are they going to say about you when you're gone? What's going to be left when you're out of office? Who cares about the four years or the eight years? What's going to be the residual effect? Because what happens is, and this is my last point, let history decide, not the polls. History will decide your legacy. History will be kind to you or unkind to you. And there are some presidents that we've had that, quite frankly, in the moment, were very unpopular. But historically, it will be proven that they were very wise individuals. Although the polls did not indicate that of their day. Every one of these sermons, I've ended with a letter to Mr. and Mrs. President, whoever they may be. And I want to do that today. And then I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm going to pray for you as you go. And as you prayerfully, prayerfully uh, make a decision on whom you think the next president of the United States should be. I, I do understand that, that leadership is a stewardship. It's temporary and it's accountable. That God's going to do what God's going to do. I want to remind you, even from a message like today, that God can work through Pharaohs. He can work through Nebuchadnezzar's. And he'll bring a Joseph along or he'll bring a Daniel along that will speak. God can also work through godly kings like David and Solomon. But God's will is going to be done, but he chooses to use us. And that's the reason why we make this a prayerful consideration. Because our opinions will be expressed in our vote and therefore will result in election of a president. That's why it's important for us. And it's also important for us is that you learn to hear God's voice for yourself. You don't need to be spoon-fed answers. You don't need me to tell you what to do. You're highly intelligent people. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. And that God speaks to you about you. He didn't speak to me about you. He speaks to you about you. He may speak to me about us, but he speaks to you about you. And if you'll listen and you'll ask, he'll speak and give you wisdom. Dear Mr. and Mrs. President, lead us, don't try to please us. This generation will always be consumed with this generation. For we are accustomed to getting our own way. Don't let that influence you. Lead this generation with the next generation in mind. 
Lead as if then is now. Be content to let history judge your actions rather than a current public opinion poll. We will want you to be fair, but please don't aim for fair. Because fairness rarely leads to compassion. It often leads to confusion. Instead, do what's right. Whether your decisions are judged by us as fair or not. When we refuse to live responsibly and then refuse to embrace the consequences of our irresponsible behaviors, don't bail us out. For what's rewarded gets repeated. And if you reward our irresponsibility, the next generation will expect theirs to be rewarded as well. Lastly, as you surround yourself with women and men who share your political persuasion, also remain open to the voices of outsiders. For you never know, like Pharaoh, that God may grace you with a Joseph.